Be seated. Please open your Bibles if you have one to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12 is where we will be. There are Bibles in the back if you need one to follow along with us today. But if you don't have one, of course, take it with you. It's our gift to you. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is where we will be this morning as we are doing a study through First and Second Samuel. We're closing in uh, the, to the end. Uh, we'll be done sometime before the winter ends, hopefully in the spring. Uh, all sermons are online, video and audio and podcast if you'd like, and if you wanted to follow along with us. So Second Samuel chapter 12. Starting with last week, when we were in chapter 11, and for the next couple of weeks, including today, we'll be looking at a very familiar story in the Bible, a, a very familiar narrative to many of us about a beloved character of the scripture. His name is King David. King David made a, a total mess of his life. That's where we're at. Sexual sin. The giant that David was taken down by. And the sad but interesting thing about this disastrous decision that he made is that it came immediately after God made him king over Israel, united the kingdom under him, made a covenant with him, made some promises with him, gave him victory over his enemies, and things were really going well for David. We've been seeing that for weeks before chapter 11. He was a man the Lord has sought out according to God's own heart, the Lord's own heart. But like the rest of mankind, all but one, David was a fallen and and sinful human being. No matter what character... No matter what character you study in Scripture, you're going to see some ugly stuff. If you, if, you, if you look at the person, we went through Genesis, we saw Abraham, there are other people. And what happens is sometimes when we study men like David, like Abraham, we see the truth about that person. I think sometimes we look at Scripture and we're reading the Bible and we're looking and we think that it's primarily about the heroes of the faith and that somehow we learn from them how to live, how to be better people, how, how to copy them as their example so that God will bless us. I mean, David faced that giant and overcame the giant named Goliath. Remember, he had, he had courage, he had faith. Be like him. Some of that may be true, but like I said, the giant that took down David was in chapter 11. David had his eyes on God when he took down Goliath. David had his eyes off of God when the giant took him down. He committed adultery. He committed murder. We found him to be a a liar, not telling the truth. In fact, as I mentioned last week, seven out of the ten commandments he broke. Not seven suggestions, seven commandments. The story of David and Bathsheba is proof positive that the scriptures are not simply a book of virtue, it's a book of gospel. Dr. Keller rightly points out when he says, it's not a story of moral exemplars. It is a record of God's intervening grace into the lives of those who do not deserve it, are not seeking it, who continually resist it, and who even do not appreciate it even when they have been saved by it. End quote. That's me. Remember, David is the anointed king of Israel. He is home. He is walking on his rooftop 
while all the other kings are fighting battles. Israel's were, lights were fighting the Ammonites at the time. He was not where he was supposed to be. Chapter 11, verse 1 makes it very clear. The trap is set. And he then sees Bathsheba bathing, actually cleansing herself, the scripture says, from her, uh, her uh, ritual defilements. She's actually following the command of God. David then not only sees her, but sends messengers to find out who this very beautiful woman was. But it doesn't stop there. No, he, he then seizes her and commits adultery with her. Verbs all over the place. He sees, he, he sends, he takes. And then Bathsheba sends him a message. You remember. Two words in the Hebrew. I am pregnant. And that message doesn't cause David to humble himself and to repent. No, he, he, we saw last week, he doubles down in his sin. And he begins to deceive everyone around him, including Uriah, the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, and has him killed. David thinks he's in control. David thinks he's in control. He has kept this wickedness under wrap. And in check, chapter 11, verse 27, after Uriah has been killed, he sends for Bathsheba, brings her to his house. She becomes his wife and bore him a son. But then the rest of verse 27, kind of the stamp. God's been silent up to this point during this heinous sin. The thing that David has done, look at chapter 11, verse 27, has displeased the Lord. Not good. Now it's time for God to do the sending. Verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Four movements. Nathan will give, Nathan will tell a story, a narrative. And he presents this to the king. And God uses this story to crush David. But before that, David's going to explain we're going to see his indignation. David is violently angry or just beside himself. And then God steps in and brings the ramification of what the consequences of David's sin is. And then finally we'll end up with God's grace, his forgiven, forgiveness, God's substitute. So hear the word of the Lord. Let, let's look at this narration. Chapter 11, verse 27, the thing that David did, displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent, chapter, remember there's no chapter and verses in the original, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. Now we don't know how he told this story, but as I read this and, and heard just over and over this week, I can only imagine he said, the rich man had Many, many flocks and herds, but the poor man had just this little baby, cute ewe lamb that he had bought. It was his. He brought it up. He grew it up. It grew up with him and his kids. Oh, this little lamb used to eat of his morsel, drink from his cup. You know, just bringing David right into the story. And lie in his arm, it was like his own daughter. You can see David listening. Now, there came a traveler to a rich man, to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flocks or herds to prepare for the guest who had come to him. It's an Eastern uh, way of 
hospitality. So what did he do? He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And God had a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So he takes it for himself. Now the verb sent, God sent, shows up saying that things are changing now. God has shown up. God is now speaking. In fact, let me see how many times. Uh, the verbs are 12 times in chapter 11 do we see the word send because David is sending, Bathsheba is sending, Joab sends, and now God sends. You see, chapter 12 is this now change. God is sending, and God is going to expose the sin of David, and everything's going to change. And and family, as hard as this is, this is going to crush David. As hard as this is, this is about love. This, 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 Sending of Nathan the prophet is about God's love. Listen, God's word coming to you, even if it crushes you, even if it rebukes you, is a matter of grace and love. Why? Because then, some of you experienced this, because then you are ready to receive the good news of the gospel, the grace and redeeming love of God. Mark Driscoll used to say, soft words produce hard people, while hard words produce soft people, humble people. Leaving us in our sin and rebellion is not love. And God is pursuing David. Two important things you need to know about the context of this story. Number one, David is king over Israel. He has the authority and, and the right and the oversight of the law of God, of of the the nation carrying out the laws of God. He's responsible. He's the ruler and the judge in all the cases of Israel, or at least in the bigger cases in Israel. Remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, it said that David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and equity, or justice and righteousness to all his people. He's the king. He's the judge. So what Nathan is doing here, he's bringing a case before the judge. That's that's what's happening here. Something that he was used to doing. That was David's job. The second thing that's important to see is that Nathan is not acting like a coward. It's not like Nathan's like, I better not come walking into the king and and, and just say, hey man, you're wicked, you sinned. That, that's not, I don't think that's, the, that's not what's happening. It's not that he does not have courage, but he's telling the story, I believe, using these word pictures as a smart move. Sometimes communicating in this way is really good. In your marriage, in your relationships, even at work, people really like to see the story. If that's, your, if that's the way you communicate. But this story goes straight to the heart of David. This little lamb story was one that, that a shepherd would identify with. You remember now, David was a shepherd boy. Maybe he even had a lamb when he was younger, a pet lamb, I don't know. But he's readily identifying with this story because he too was a shepherd. But either way, he, how could you not be moved by this story, right? How could you not move by a rich man who has everything he could possibly want, an abundance of stuff, and yet he takes something from someone who only has this one thing, and he takes it for himself. David's moved by the story, but he doesn't see the connection yet. 
Notice the irony, or should I say the pun. The, the, the story is this about this poor man, and the poor man is characterized by giving. The poor man takes the little lamb, he gives him food, he gives the little lamb drink, he gives the little lamb love and affection, he's, he's a giver. Notice, secondly, the little lamb is portrayed as lying in the arms of the poor man. It even says that it's a daughter, just like a daughter to him. I want you to see what Nathan is doing. The poor man is characterized as giving, while the rich man is characterized by taking. Just like David. David took Bathsheba, committed adultery with him. Also in chapter 11, verse 4, it says that David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and lay with her. That's the same, ver- that's the same word here. The poor man took the, 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 this lamb and, and lay in his arms. And the word Bathsheba, B-A-T-H, the first part of Bathsheba, the same Hebrew beginning for daughter. He's laying it out before David. You took, you lay with her, and you killed and sacrificed this lamb. And yet you killed and sacrificed her husband. He, he's not following yet, but, but Nathan is, 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 is going to the heart of David. He calls him out on his sin in a way that David, catch this, in a way that David was, I want to say willing, but understood, right? I, I think it, it, Nathan loves David. I think Nathan is, is, is following the love of God, the grace of God, and, and going after David in such a way that he would understand and be able to repent from his sin. Does that make sense? So Dr. Keller writes this. He says, when, when there, this is, this, catch this now. When there's any hope at all of persuasion, God goes for conviction and conversion, not condemnation. It is very easy to condemn someone in such a way that you just raise their defense mechanisms up so high there's no way they'll ever repent. It glorifies God for you to tell the truth about sin, but it glorifies God more if the person you're telling the truth to repents. If you condemn a person in such a way that it is so offensive it makes it almost impossible for that person to repent, you're self-righteous. You're not on God's side, end quote. I'm just going to tell them what it is. You know what you did? Uh, there's no thought. There's no love. There's no communication. There's only self-righteousness. That's what Keller's saying. And I think, I think, that's, I, I think Nathan is doing the opposite. So my question then and for us is what kind of Nathan are we? Right? Uh, yes, we're called to be honest and to speak into the lives of those God has brought into our lives as relationships with them. But are we doing so in such a way that they'll understand. They'll receive it. They'll accept it as, as the love of God, the word of God. It takes prayer. It takes discernment. It takes relationship. It takes love. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul's prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory of God the Father. So, Nathan is, is, is coming in such a way, I, I think, it, I think, it doesn't, I think it's, it's, it's courageous here, and he confronts him, 
with love in a way that he understands that. We all need friends like that, family. We all need friends like that. Hebrews tells us, exhort one another, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I think what's happening here is, and what's happened to all of us, our blind spots, <laughs> our, meaning me, I'm in this room too, our blind spots spin out our sin from our blind spots, spins out of this self-defense mechanism we live, we live in denial at times. And most of the time, our biggest flaws we don't see. And we need someone to say, you know what? You got my permission. I know you love me. Do you have a person like that? I do. That no matter what he says, I know he loves me. And he could say whatever's necessary into my life. You have a friend like that? That's what Nathan is doing. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's pointed. And look what happens, verse 5. David's indignation. And David's anger was greatly kindled. Greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he had no pity. Okay, David's mad. David's really mad. I think if, if, if you were king and you were judge and this story came to you, you would be mad too, but death? You know, David, the guy that was totally unmoved, who could care less about Uriah when he was told Uriah's dead and a lot of other men had to die because you wanted Uriah dead. Oh, okay, Sarah, Sarah. Eh. He killed a lamb? Dead. As they say in the movies, I want him dead. <laughs> He's explosive. And, and the first problem of this, this overextended, this crazy explosive anger is that the man's, what the man did was wrong and despicable, but he did not deserve death. He stole a lamb. He should return it fourfold, and that's actually part of the law. So David's quoting some of the law. He's right. He should return. Store fourfold the lamb, that's in Leviticus, excuse me, Exodus, but not death. Why was David so angry? What's up with that unbalanced response? I think that David was a troubled individual. I think David covered his sin, he talks about it in the psalm, and his bones wasted all day long. He was overcompensating for his accusing conscience, lashing out at the wickedness of other people. David is furious and wants the man killed because of a guilty conscience. And when that happens, not only we are angry, but we become overly upright in all kinds of other areas in our life and try to cover up the pain and the hurt and the sin of our own lives. We try to cover up our guilt. And become inordinately excessive toward other people's, their wrongdoing, what they did. David knows his own conscience. David knows he's wrong. He puts on the robe of justice, and what does he do? He's excessive. Robert Alter, he's a Hebrew scholar. Nathan's rhetorical trap has now snapped shut. David, by his excess of anger, condemns himself and is now the helpless target of the denunciation that Nathan will unleash. 
The second problem with his indignation, which is blaring, is his hypocrisy. (laughs) The judge was himself guilty. His deeds were deserving of death. And yet, he wants this man, who's not guilty of death, to die. David deserves to die, according to Leviticus 20, Leviticus 24, for murder and for adultery. Not this man. Fourfold, yes. And what's interesting about the fourfold, I read this in a couple of places this week, is David will actually, as we continue in this story, David will actually lose four sons. They'll be killed. Bathsheba's son will read, Amnon, Absalom, and Adoniah in 1 Kings. Some sort of divine fulfillment of what he is saying at that moment. Chuck Swindoll writes, when confrontation, when confrontation occurs in God's timing, the way is prepared. David stuck his head in the loose and Nathan pulled the string. Gotcha. You know what this story should remind us of? This story should remind us of another story. Genesis chapter 38 is a story of Judah and Tamar, if you know the story. Jacob's son, Judah, had three sons, Ur, Anon, and Shelah. Ur married Tamar. Ur died. Tamar became a widow. In that culture, it was required for the next brother to take her as his own wife to continue on the prosperity, the posterity of the line, the lineage, the dynasty. So Tamar was given to Onan, but then Onan died too. Now she's a widow twice. Sheila, the final son, was a boy. So Judah says to Tamar, listen, my other son, my third son, my other two are dead. At that point, I think I would run. But he said, did what's right. I will give you my third son, but he's too young right now. You go home to your father. He'll take care of you. And then when my son gets older, you can, you can, I'll give him to you, and you can carry on the line. Well, Judah didn't honor his promise. So Tamar is unmarried, big problem in that culture. She's a widow. And during the time of sheep shearing, Tamar went up to the city where they were shearing their sheep and disguised herself as a prostitute. And if you remember the story, if you know the story, Judah, the patriarch, took the bait, slept with his daughter-in-law, and guess what? She became pregnant. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter, he didn't know it was her, has been immoral. She's been a prostitute. She's been, she's been uh, uh, involved outside of marriage. And what does Judah say? Bring her out and burn her. Whoa. Right on cue, self-righteous religious bigot. <laughs> His attitude like David was extremely hateful and anger. I mean, you don't burn people at the stake. Very rare, and this ain't one of them. Tamar gives birth to twins. Perez and Zerah. And we know Perez is the great, great ninefold down the road to David himself. But right on cue, this one who says, I'm a believer, right on cue, is acting like a self-righteous religious guy who forgets that salvation is by grace alone. That's what happens. That's what self-righteousness does to us. We forget and we become angry And what? We despise certain type of people and their behaviors. It may be sinful. I I, I grant that. 
But what behavior, what type of people, what are people doing that you despise in your heart? That may be a sure sign of your self-righteousness, my self-righteousness. The cross levels everyone. Everyone. I would never do that. If you hear yourself do that, if you hear yourself say that to yourself, and we all do, don't raise your hand. Just say to yourself, but for the grace of God, there go I. I mean, I get it. Just, just preach the gospel to yourself regularly. Because what we'll do is we'll justify our own sins, our own struggles. They're much less than that person. That's a real bad place to be. I know there are some sins that are more destructive than others. I get that. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point, James says, is accountable for it all. Burner at the stake. He's going to die. He took the lamb. Kill him. You got to be careful. David is saying, I'm going to hide my sin. All that I have done ain't half as bad as what that guy did. Take that little lamb from that guy. That's a problem. He doesn't understand. He doesn't see the connection yet. He doesn't see the connection that his lack of compassion for stealing a poor man's beloved companion, Uriah's wife Bathsheba, is much worse than what this man has done. He hasn't seen it yet. And look what he says in verse 5. I love this. This is the crowning touch of a self-righteous person. He has this religious seasoning on top of it. As the Lord lives, <laughs> the man who had done this deserves to die. Okay. Verse 7. Look at the ramifications. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Two words in Hebrew again. Two words. It started with, I'm pregnant. <laughs> you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Nathan says. In other words, David, God is speaking right now to you. You realize that when the word of God is read, when the word of God is preached, when the word of God, well, not preached in a sense of the same thing, but what I mean is the scriptures, when the scriptures speak, God himself speaks. God is pursuing David by sending his word. God is pursuing you by sending his word. And he tells David the truth. You struck, you have taken, you have killed. This is what you have done. He's coming after David. And God's not, listen, God loves you enough to send his word to you. God loves you enough to speak truth through his word, through a loving friend, through the proclamation of the gospel. That's the kind of God we have. Do you see God's word, even if it cuts, as something that God is sending to you in love? Because no matter how deep the cut may be, there's the balm of Gilead. There's the gospel. There's the good news of Jesus. There's the blood that was shed. There's forgiveness for all our sins. David is king of Israel. There is no one above him. But yet David is what David is doing is submitting to the word. The prophet's coming with the word. He doesn't stand under. He doesn't stand over the word. He stands under the word. The word of God is being brought. And he says, the first thing I want you to consider, 
Nathan brings in the word and says, consider what I've done to you. Look, look what it says in verse 7. I, I anointed you king, God is saying. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Now, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you, I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much, much more. New verb now. Not I take, but I gave, I gave, I gave. David, I gave this to you. I gave all this to you. And he rehearses, God rehearses everything that David has been given, all that God is, to David. David's crime has a national prominence. He's got his master's house. Now, in that culture, remember, when a king would conquer a kingdom, and everything that belongs to that king now becomes the possession of, of the other king, and that's what God is saying here, right? And, and, and I'll tell you, <laughs> it is wonderful but hard at times to rehearse the grace of God in your life when you know what I'm doing ain't right. And God is just showing David his grace, his love, your king over Israel, you, you are king over God's people. You've been protected by God's power. Your possessions were provided by God's grace. David, do you see that? You're the rich man. There's no need, you take, there's no need for you to take both a man's wife and his life. I have given you everything, and all you have done is take, take, take. Consider. Conviction, too. Look at chapter, in chapter 11, excuse me, in chapter 11, we talked about this last week, if there's any question about who's guilty for this sin, we talked about it last week again, uh, that David has caused, look at verse 9, there should be no more concerns, why have you, David, despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You violated the word, you violated the law, and it's not just the word, it's not just the law, it's not some abstract rules, but the very nature and character and personhood of God. You have despised the word and done what is evil in his sight. You see that? To trample on his commandment is to trample on the commander. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. He did not say, I know Bathsheba's beautiful. Man, she should not have been outside. I know you were, it was really, really hard for you. Uh, you know, I, I, he doesn't say any of that. You, David, are responsible. You're the one that did that. In fact, not only did, did Uriah die by the hands of the Ammonites, but you're responsible the responsibility of what David did in chapter 11 falls squarely on the king. Consideration, conviction, and now verse 10, very, very hard. Castigation. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. If you know the rest of the story, it goes down, it it. It's a long, bloody history now in the Davidic kingdom. David will never be the same. Back in chapter 11, verse 25, remember David's callous remark to Joab, the commander. He said, ah, the sword devours now and one another, 
And now David hears the word of God and he says, the sword, that, that sword that you said no big deal will never leave your house. And for generations, Davidic lineage, the, the dynasty of David is conspiracy, murder, rape, internal strife in David's life. Thus, verse 11, says the Lord, Behold, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this man, uh, in sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but ha, what I'm going to do, I'm going to do it before all Israel and before the son. The Lord's going to accept and forgive David, but... Just like Alec Moiter said this. He said, repentance, David's going to repent. We'll see that. Is like throwing a stone. Repentance is like throwing a stone into a pond. You can fetch the stone back again, but you cannot stop the ripples from spreading. David, what you sow, you will reap. Family, what I sow, many times we will reap. I will reap. David will know extraordinary grace and forgiveness, but things have greatly changed in his life. Because of his sin, the whole nation is implicated, involved, and generations to come will be reminded of David's failure. I'll take your wives. You did it in secret, I'm doing it before everyone. All of Israel will know and witness this Lord, the Lord's decree to David. God will have the final say. The humiliation of David will take place in front of all Israel. It can't get any worse than this. It can only get better. And God provides God's substitution. Verse 13, David is broken. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Again, two words in the Hebrew. First Bathsheba, I'm pregnant. Then Nathan to David, you're the man. Now David, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, we have to be careful. We're going to look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51, if you want to go home and read that, we're going to look at it next week. Uh, we'll take just a break from this because in Psalm 51, we see the extent of David's confession and repentance we can't just look at these you can't just look at these few words and really read into david's heart god does we can't but we can do is look at psalm 51 and see the extent of his repentance his turning around his confession that he sinned against the lord there's a german translation called the berleberg berleberg bible 1700s and this is a note that they write in that in that in that translation listen to this he says this, the words are very few, just as in the case of the publican in the Gospel of Luke. But this is a good sign, a sign of, of a thoroughly broken spirit. There's no excuse, no cloaking, no palliation, no relief or lessening of sin. There's no searching for a loophole, no pretext for, uh, put forward, no human weakness pleaded. It's her fault. David acknowledges his guilt openly, candidly. And without provocation, without lying, end quote. David has sinned. He said, I've sinned against you, Lord. It doesn't, mean that, it doesn't mean that when we sin against one another, that we're not sinning against each other. 
What David is saying when he says, I have sinned against the Lord, he's going to the ultimate one. All that David has done, he sinned against Joab, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against all those people he has sinned against. But ultimately, all those people were created in the Imago Dei, the image likes of God. Ultimately, his sin is finally rest upon the Lord. I have sinned against you. And that's the difference between David and Saul. Remember, Saul's confronted of his sin, but Saul refused to repent. He buckled down. He, 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 he bobbed down, and he didn't want to hear it. Here, David is broken. Here, David is broken. No excuses. He acknowledges his sin. He even acknowledges that he deserves to die. But rather than get death, David gets grace. And Nathan said to David, look what it says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's not what the law required. That is grace. That is love. That is the incomprehensible grace and love of God. But how is that possible? Can God just step in and say, your sins are forgiven? David is without an excuse. His sin caused people to die. He committed adultery. He had all kinds of people die in the process. He's lied and cheated and stole. He did evil, it says, in the eyes of God. And God just puts away his sin. He doesn't hold it against him. He's not going to bear any penalty that he deserves. You shall not die. The ripples will continue, but the consequence, I should say the punishment, God does not lay upon David. The Lord forgave David and granted him this unmerited gift of life. Here's the remarkable thing. David is a man who has sinned and is guilty of Blood guilt. Technically, he should die. You would expect the penalty from God to be executed. Look at verse 14. You shall not die, but, or nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now, we're going to look at this two more weeks from now. That, what happens to that child. So, but let me just say this. Very, very, very carefully. Please, 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 please. Do not just haphazardly apply this to your life, okay? You're not King David, men. Ladies, you're not Bathsheba, okay? I, I want, I, losing a child is very, very, very hard. This story is not meant to make light of it. Nor are we to say that if we sinned against God, God's going to take, that's his regular course of action, take the child. That is not, that is not what's happening here. You're not David, you're not Bathsheba, okay? I will deal with it more as we get to that in two more weeks from now. But the narrator here ties King David's sin and guilt. This deed that you've done, King David, you scorned the Lord, you're the king of Israel, this deed, you've designed that deser- this deed that you have done deserves death. But your son will die. So how can God just overlook sin? Is God not just? God can't just look over sin. Can the Lord just put away your sin? How could that be? That should raise questions. That should be a problem that God just says, oh, you're forgiven. All that you've done. 
The Lord has put away your sin, David, but someone will die. You will not die, but somebody will die. Your child will die. You will live. God will bring the child to glory. We're going to read about that. The child's going to be in the presence, the eternal love and presence of God. But right now, for David, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of hope for David. For David, God's forgiveness was both marvelous and costly. The child would die. King David's sin was like all of our sins. All of us are under the penalty of death. I don't think we can know exactly what's going on in David's mind at this moment. But the seeds of the gospel are being planted. You'll be forgiven, David. But there's a cost. The death of a son to be forgiven. Do do you realize that God cannot just say, I forgive you. He's a just God, but that a son must die. Had to die, must die, to atone for sins. And here's the paradox of our forgiveness. It's both free and costly because a son, the son of David, has been our substitute. The son of God incarnate had to die a terrible death so that we may hear the same words that David heard. Your sins are forgiven you. Listen, all of us, all of us, me included, all of us deserve death not life. All of us have the sentence of death, not life. This applies to everyone, for the wages of sin is death. All of us are going to experience physical death because of our sins unless Jesus comes back. All of us have been born physically to die and born spiritually dead unless you've repented of your sins, you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. If you haven't, we'll be eternally dead, separated from God in a place that God calls hell. David was not being judged, and his penalty was not being imposed for his sins because a greater son would be his substitute. He would bear his punishment, receive the just wrath, and die for his sins, not just his sin, but our sins, yours and mine. When Jesus Christ came to earth, When Jesus Christ came to earth and died on the cross to pay the debt for sin, he bore our wrath and experienced that hellish experience when he was separated from the fathers. And the punishment that we deserve, our sins were imputed to him. He experiences the agonies of the cross. He dies as our substitute in order that God would say to you and to me, the Lord has put away your sins, you shall not die. You shall not die. No one has ever lost a child as God lost a child. No one. Romans 3.23. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, wrath-absorbing death, by his blood to be received by faith, so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus dies as a substitute, as a substitute, so that his righteousness is upheld and his love can be experienced. That's the gospel. David's learning the gospel. So my question is, Are you living in sin? Sexual or not? 
God's forgiveness is for you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you are, the call for you is the same call for David. Turn from your sin. Be forgiven. Be forgiven. Turn and receive God's love and forgiveness. A second question I want us to think about as we go to our next song is, are you self-righteous? We talk about that a lot here. Do you not know that the cross levels all of us? The same atonement that cleanses you from your sin is the same atonement that cleanses the murderer from their sins. Who do you despise? God wants to root that self-righteousness out of our hearts. And it's a constant battle. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel. My, My sin is so bad that God had to die. God loves me so much that he was glad to. Father, we thank you. May may we leave this place, Lord, humble, yet confident in the gospel. Recognizing that, God, we could never earn our way. We could never do enough. We could never be moral enough to put you in our debt. That you owe us something. We are in the same boat together. Dead in our sins. Until you have come and awakened us. So that we can see the beauty and incalculable worth of Jesus. Father, we ask, Lord, as we move forward, in this, especially in this Christmas season, help us to walk humbly before you. Give us the power. Give us the strength. Let us see your beauty and your love and your grace. Let that be the motivation for us to turn from our sins because of your grace and love toward us. And, Father, may we walk humbly And may we be a people who love, care for, show generosity to everyone. And finally, Lord, we pray that we would be a good Nathan. Let us us find people who love us. Let us open up, give them that license, Lord, so that you can use them to show us the things that need to change. We know that's your love. We're yours because of the great substitution of Jesus who died in our place. And Lord, we pray all this that you would get glory in it. In Jesus' name, amen.